Okay, well, we're uh, gonna gonna try to start out here with a with an overview, somewhat of an introduction to this book, Book of Hebrews. Um, depending on how far I get with that, uh, and I also realize before I get started, uh, some of the, the handouts that I have are gone. I will have some of those out um, today so that you can pick one of those up. So you can follow along at least to know where we are in the class during the time frame of this quarter. Um, I'm going to open up with, uh, with an overview of the book, overview of this uh, of the book of Hebrews. Um, I feel like actually uh, I could probably spend a whole class period from a lot of the things that I've studied and looked at, um, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, I'm going to try to hit some highlights, some highlight points in this in this introduction. And uh, if there are things that uh, we have questions about, obviously, please feel free to to raise your hand and we can and ask those. Um, and I, and I'm not in a race. I mean, there's 13 chapters and there's 13 Sundays. Uh, but honestly, uh, the way I feel about that is. Um, while I try to have a syllabus and I try to have something that uh, we can sort of keep on track, I think it's more important that we cover things that if we have questions or something that we don't understand, we can, we can do some research, we can look at that, which means we may not finish everything um, by, the end of, by the end of September. I want us to think this morning as we uh, look, look at... Uh, the intro to this book. You know, when I look at this book and I compare it to a lot of the other epistles that I see throughout the New Testament, the one thing that is, to me, strikingly different is the fact that uh, its, uh, its opening remarks are very different than what we see when we look at, say, 1 Corinthians, or we look at any other epistles that we know the Apostle Paul wrote um, and we're going to get into a little bit of that in this introduction as to who the author is or who the supposed author is. Um, I, have, uh, I have my own personal thought process on that and opinion. Um, but uh, the thing that I see here as we get started, this is going to be an overview or a letter uh, of great exhortation to the first century Christians. Um, Hebrews 13.22 the writer says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And there's a lot of differences, I think, when we think about the way something could open up. When you have an opening, you have a greeting. And, and if, when we see this, especially when we look at chapter, chapter 1 and the beginning of Hebrews, the, the, the writer has decided to forego that. And I think about that when, uh, you know, a lot of people look at this as another way to describe potentially a sermon. Uh, here's a 13-chapter sermon that uh, this writer is going to give and versus maybe an epistle, even though we look at it as an epistle and we see that maybe just a little different in a letter, uh, when Paul says, I write to you, as he opens it up, and he gives those type of, that type of a greeting, we don't see that here. 
And I think that we can maybe look at this as a sermon of encouragement, a sermon of, of, of building up. Um, it doesn't identify the author. Uh, it, we have, you know, again, it doesn't identify the author. We don't have really the recipients nor a section really here of Thanksgiving like we do and like we see in a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, the other epistles in the New Testament. It starts like a sermon. It divides right into the message of exhortation. Um, if you've read through this book before, there are really kind of five warning sections not to give up. That's, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, that we're going to look at in this chapter, in, in this book. Um, one of the things that in this overview is that the writer is trying to restore their confidence in Jesus Christ. He's... Uh, is stimulating their growth toward maturity. And we'll talk about that later in chapter 5. Writer presents the case for Christ's superiority over God's interaction with man in the past. Christ is a better spokesman for God and a better high priest. Christ is a mediator and a better covenant established by his own blood. Christ is the author and the finisher of our faith. And that we should look only to Christ Jesus for our salvation. In chapter twenty, chapter ten, and verse twenty-two. I think when we contemplate this overview, and we think about those things that we might highlight, I think it's important for us to see. Number one, as we look at the author, we contemplate who that might be. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that um, because there's a lot of speculation as to who that might be. Um, he didn't decide, it chose not to reveal himself within the content of this letter. Um, again, as, as, as I've said, there's been many speculations made as to who that author is. And... One of the things, and I, and, and I read from one commentator that said, in some way, to us, does it matter who that is? Should that matter? Would that take away or lessen the impact of this book? But I've read where, it, to some, it does. I've read where some feel as though without an author, it may not even be in, in the part of the canon, part of, part of the scripture, part of God's word. But we know that it is. We know that it is. And that shouldn't make a difference with, with us when we think about not having an author that we can refer to. I think sometimes when we look at the other epistles that, for instance, Paul and Peter um, Luke, some, some have written, you know, I think when we have and know some of their background, sometimes that helps us and it may even lend a, a benefit to us to know maybe why they said some things they said or they, you know, some of the things that they're referring to maybe based on their occupation, maybe based on their, their particular, their livelihood, the things that they do in life. But with this particular book, we don't have that. So 
We've got what the Holy Spirit has given us through this writer. Um, there, are, there are parts of this that when I look at it, I feel like, and, and I'm going mean, to last, last couple points here on this particular slide. Um, there are many who have suggested uh, writers such as Paul, Barnabas, Apollos, Luke, Silas, and Philip, um, and others. I, I mean, there were probably five or six others that there's people who have, and, and based on different times and, and different periods, um, have uh, felt like it might, might have been one of those individuals. Um, one of the things I think that we can see here is that this individual knew his readers well. You know, when we look at chapter 5, he's going to see that these readers have basically uh, need to be taught again. They are weak in, their, in, in what they should know. Um, and, you know, he talks to them. He challenges them about that. Um, now, you know, you should be teachers, and now you need somebody to teach you. When we think of also in chapter 13 and verse 19, he talks about he even desires to be with them. This writer desires to be with, with, with these brethren. He knew Timothy and considered him a brother. Chapter 13, verse 23. Um, and then this writer has an extensive use and knowledge of the Mosaic Law, the Levitical priesthood, the Messianic prophecies, he has the capabilities to write about those things and in very much in depth. And he brings forth a lot of that that we'll talk about in, in the latter part of, of, this, of this quarter in this, in this study. Um, but he, again, despite speculation, this author remains anonymous. Um, there are things, again, that you may have an idea in your mind as to who that is, and that's, that's great. That's fine. But the bottom line is we really don't know. And, uh, you know, the same for me. You know, I, there, are, there are things that make me think it's Paul just by some things that are written here. Um, and, th and then there's other things that, uh, you know, from looking at who this writer could be, maybe it wasn't him. Maybe it wasn't Paul. But uh, anyway, I'm not, I won't belabor that and, and spend a lot of time on it. But I wanted to at least cover that so that we could look at... Uh, that we could look at that and see, you know, just again, what, uh, what your thoughts were on that. Again, it, uh, it's not something that I feel like that we, we, we need to continue to work and, and, and go over. Um, <clears throat> who was this written to? When we think about this book and we think about uh, this audience that uh, the writer has written written to, uh, there's really not uh, a specific identity provided um, as to uh, the identity of, of these individuals. Um, again, there are things that are going to come out in the chapter that will make us surmise that it could be, you know, um, as, he, as he writes to the Hebrews and he writes to those uh, of, a, of a Christian faith, uh, the challenges and the things that he tries to present to them to keep the faith, to continue to press on, to um, we'll be able to see, again, these, these particular recipients, you know, also would have been aware of, as we talked about a while ago, the old law and many of those things under Mosaic law, um, Messianic prophecies, et cetera. 
in, in some of the things that I looked at, um, it says that the actual title of Hebrews was not found in the manuscripts until about the second or third centuries. Um, there are clues with the text to whom these readers may have been, but not specific. Main subject matter of the text used to prove the writer's message centered around the Mosaic law. Also, uh, arguments could only be of interest to those in some ways with a Jewish background with some of the things that uh, this writer brings out. And again, possibly looking at the fact that these were, were Jewish converts, um, Hebrew, Hebrew Jewish converts, um, and in that light, uh, again, it gives us some idea of who this, this, this could have been written to. What was the purpose of the letter? Uh, what was, what was the, the mission, the overall mission of this book uh, and, and the writer's intentions to get across? And I think that uh, one of the things that we see in, in that light is you know, he's exhorting Christians to remain steadfast and sure in the better covenant of Jesus Christ. Uh, these individuals are under duress and they're under some persecution, but what kind? Are they under bloodshed? Are they under the type of persecution that is, I mean, are they, are they, in, are they in fear? Are they dealing with loss of life? What are they dealing with? Okay. Yeah, I, I don't think they're at that point. Um, I, I think that from, from things again, in, in reading this, I've, you know, I've, I have a while, I'm, I'm going to say it's, it's been a few years, my thought process has somewhat always been, Mitch, like yours, that they were under that type of persecution where they were dealing with, you know, fear for their lives and the things that they were doing. But I think what, what, I've, what I feel like I now kind of swayed in a different direction is the fact that these individuals are, you know, dealing with, you know, coming out of Judaism and now looking at being Christians and the things that they're dealing with with those individuals that they've left, those, those friendships and those acquaintances, those interactions uh, are causing them a lot, of, a lot of duress and it's causing them to weaken um, and it's causing them to, whether it's, to, you know, to fall away. And, and, and I don't know that, and, and again, this is in somewhat speculation on my part, but when I look at these 13 chapters and I see the things that they're under and the things that they're dealing with and the writer is trying to encourage them in, I'm not sure that it's even about them falling back into Judaism, even though those capabilities could be there, as much as it is recognizing that they are part of the Christian faith, that they're Christians now, and that what they need to do to embrace that, what they need to do to hold on to that, what they need to do to persevere in that versus, versus 
lay back on their laurels, oh, woe is me, and feel as though that, you know, that, you know, all the things that are coming at them, whether it's social, whether it's, you know, it, whatever it is, that they need to stay the course and they need to engage and they need to be a part of, you know, what this particular writer is telling them. And that's why I think, and we're going to talk about that here shortly, is what is he doing to encourage them? And to think, when I look at the theme of this book and I see what he's trying to do in that light is to make them recognize based on where they've been and again, going back to that, to where they should be now. Again, looking at chapter five, when they should be where they should were as teachers and they're not now. And, and several things like that. Um, they should be looking at Christianity and seeing that, that, that Jesus Christ is, is superior all those things and why they should embrace that no matter what the cost is, no matter what the situation is. So again, I think that, uh, you know, he's going to use things like with, and, and share with them with better promises. Uh, why turn back to an inferior covenant? Uh, he's going to use words like better, eternal, once for all, much more, hold fast, to spotlight Christ's superiority over anything, over anything else completely. Um, chapter 10, verse 23, you know, he's, he says to him, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who's promised is faithful. 10, verse 23. Before I start into chapter 1, is there any questions about anything that, that I've said? Or any anything that you would like to present, or so I just wanted to um, point out a passage that uh, is the reason for what I said about bloodshed. Hebrews chapter twelve and verse four says, "You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin." That's from the King James Version. The English Standard says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Correct. Yes. And I appreciate that, David. Um, I, uh, I, I was going to go there, but uh, that's, uh, when you said it the way you said it, uh, I didn't turn to that, but it took me some time to understand some of that, where it'll actually bring out some of the things that, Christians have gone through from, I mean, a lot of horrendous things, but they're not there at that point. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Hey, Phil. Oh, sorry. Carrie, I'm sorry. Um, <clears throat> also, if we look at Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 32 and following, you can really see a picture of what they had suffered from the time that they had converted into Christianity. So they had undergone a level of persecution, maybe not to bloodshed, but they had undergone that. And so the writer is encouraging them in verse 35 not to throw away their reward, but to endure. And so there's this picture of these Christians with a Hebrew background of shirking back, of not enduring, of going back to an inferior covenant. Yes. Uh, and so... There's a ton of lessons in this past this book, even though it's to Hebrews, 
there's a ton of lessons that we can learn from this book just in, you know, not us to shirk back, but to continue to look and focus on the faith that we have in Christ. Absolutely. Appreciate that. Thank you. Let's look at, uh, as we delve into chapter one, um, I'm going to read the first three verses, and I'm going to read this a couple of ways. Uh, this is the King James Version. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And I, I, I want to look at this and just and recognize um, just kind of do a little little breakdown of, of these three verses. Uh, but I also would like to read that from the New American Standard. Verse 1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And I'm not going to read verse 3, but the, the one thing that is, is, you know, that stands out to me, you know, people, and, and, and in through the years, when you hear this verse 1 especially read, that God, you know, and we, when we read about, you know, we think about divers' manners, you know, I, I can't remember the last individual I talked with that used those terms that would have, you know, s said that. But I, you know, and when we think about that and we think about this particular study, sundry times. Um, and again, it's basically saying that in a different way. And, and I think uh, the New American Standard Bible brings that out or basically gives some of the definition in its term, as you see the, the various ways, the various times and times past, he spoke to the fathers um, in those in sundry times, um, looking at that from, and, and I'm going to just give you a, a little bit of thinking about that particular word, divers is different or unequal. Um, something that may have been of, of, and again, thinking of a diver that would dive in water, weights and diver measures that are different, things that would have been, um, they weren't the same and it wasn't something, and it, this was something that would have been a variety of things. Um, but again, if your Bible reads that, just, and then that's, Part of the reason why I wanted to give you, uh, again, as the New American Standard Bible reads, that a little different. But as we get into this particular, as we get into this particular 
these three verses, boy, there's a lot here. We could spend the rest of the class period, and who knows, we may, uh, versus getting into the remaining 4 through 14 uh, of this book to finalize this chapter. There, there is a ton of stuff here. And uh, when we see God after he spoke a long time ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, you know, I think it's important that we realize he's going to right off the bat it's a, I mean, he is going to be basically sending a punch right off the bat to say Jesus Christ is superior in every way. And we're going to see that, uh, you know, again, as we go through this particular chapter, you know, as, as he starts out. God introduced as a primary source of this message ensures his readers the claim made in the epistle are from the one true God and not man. He spoke to man at various times, revealing his will for man. Um, I think it's when we, when we think about this and we think about some things that uh, in the way God has gone about from the past to the present, so to speak, the difference there, many portions included pieces of the mystery. Uh, he later revealed in his son from Romans 16 when we see that. Um, the various times that he reveals for man, revealed his word in various ways to the Father by the prophets. Um, and I'm going to just bring up a little bit here in some of the various ways, and, and this may not have been everything, but uh, just things that I thought about just right off the top that, that God had communicated and ways that he had communicated with man uh, the fathers back during the time and it, the, the fathers by the prophets and direct revelations, um, his in dreams and visions, uh, symbols, nature itself. Um, these were things that God says, and, and this writer says in talking about God, this is how he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets. Then he goes and moves into verse 2. He goes to verse 2, and what does he say? But in these, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son. What would you say if asked, what are the last days? Does that, what are the last days? Anybody? Seth? Okay. So, what's the significance of that? That's right. There's not going to be any more. This is, this, is, this is it. The last days. And I think it's uh, for us to contemplate that at times. You know, when we think about all the, the various dispensations that we've experienced in, throughout the old law up until now, the Christian dispensation, the Christian, Christian age, um, I think as Roger said, it's, it's important for us and what we need to understand from this today as he shares that with them during this writing is that uh, 
in these particular last days, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Writer establishes why Christ is due such honor. It, uh, it gives us the fact that Jesus is God's son, and we see that he is God's heir as we, as we look at this. We see that uh, where he is heir of all things, Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He's in the express image of God's person. Christ is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. He made purification of our sins. And then what did he do at the end there? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I think one of the things that, again, when you've got people who have gone through some of the things that they are, have gone through with regard to persecution, with regard to being challenged in their faith, and we think about why this, re, this, this writer basically just comes in and gives them a shot in the arm fast, brings up, you know, this, there could have been a buildup, there could have been a buildup, so to speak, to Jesus, his attributes and the things that he's capable of, the things that uh, we should take advantage of because... But because I think, and, and again, looking at these people who are struggling, he wants their attention fast. He's trying to do everything he can to throw them a lifeline so that they're not going to succumb to uh, falling away, to, to not being as they should be in the Christian, the Christ, with the Christian attributes they should be building on because of Jesus Christ because of where they are in, in, in their Christian life. And I think he brings these things out to tell them, you know, back in the time frame during, you know, during the old law, and we think about Judaism and those individuals who have come out of that and were converted to Christianity. You know, they knew those, you know, and I think those are the reasons that he brings a lot of those things out too, is because they're very familiar with how that communication occurred. They are very understanding, and I think to, to, again, be on their level and to give them information that they can digest and that they can honestly say, you know, that's right. You know, this is exactly the way God communicated with us back then and did that to the fathers, did that through Moses, did that through various prophets, and... That's how God communicated. That's how God, but again, when we think about that, that was also done in many ways, many portions, segments, piece here, piece there. Um, it wasn't like we have with, with Jesus. And again, what he's saying here, he's now spoken to us through his son and we have everything. We have everything. We ha you have everything that you need and he gives Jesus 
the attributes, he gives Jesus the these credentials that he, so to speak, is bringing to their attention that they have these things as we see here. He's God's son. Don't, take light, don't make light of that. He's God's heir. Christ is the radiance of God's glory. He's the express image of God's person. Christ is the creator and sustainer of the universe. You know, he made purifications for our sins. This was, and, and many of them are aware of that. They knew that that Messiah was coming. They knew that his capabilities would be, you know, as, and as we read through the latter part of Hebrews, we're going to recognize that there are many, and we look at the faith chapter in chapter 11, and we see many, many people who went to their graves again looking for this son, looking for this Jesus Christ. And uh, while these are still alive, those who have died in that faith look forward to the coming of that, that, this Messiah. And this writer is doing his best to bring this to the forefront immediately, quickly, so that this introduction, so to speak, in this sermon, um, he sees and, and lets them know that uh, Jesus continues to rule. In, he's, he's God. He's everything that exists and continues to exist because of him. Just as God's word created the world, it is God's word that sustains the world. Uh, because there is a creation, then there must be a God. Because the world only exists and continues to exist because of his powerful word. The purification of sins was unlike anything that someone could do for us. And you think back again, and, and we'll get into this more as we study this book, but we think about you know, Jesus making purification for the sins and then sit down at, at God's right hand. You know, Jesus is somewhat, he's, he's picturing him, I believe, as a high priest who's made purifications for the sins uh, you know, of sins of the people. And he's pictured, you know, here he can be pictured as a king sitting down on a throne next to the majesty on high as well. You know, when, when, when all the priests at that, and the priests had to do the things that they did to sacrifice for the people back in the old law. And then we recognize now that Jesus is not standing and working for us like those priests had to do. And the work, the things that they did, his work is perfect. It's so perfect and complete that he was able to sit down on God's right hand versus thinking about those things that existed back in the old law. Questions? Anything before we, we move on? Mitch? Good point. Yeah. We're opening doors back here. 
It's never a good sign for me. Um, I'm going to get into this just a little bit. We've got just about two or three minutes, um, and then we'll have to we'll have to uh, resume next week. But uh, when we think about the next segment here of chapter one, again, uh, Jesus and in, in, in the writer talking about Jesus' superiority in the first three verses. Um, and now we're going to see in verse four, he's in, in really through, through the end of this chapter and maybe even talking about a little bit of it from chapter two, um, getting into them drifting away. But he's going to talk about Jesus and his uh, superiority over angels. And uh, why do you think, and again, uh, I, I don't know what this writer had on his mind with regard to this, but why would you think that uh, there might be a comparison of Jesus and the angels? I think I'm hearing Leanne's voice, but I don't see a Leanne. Oh, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I said, I said, Jesus, is higher, I said uh, Jesus is higher than the angels, and Jesus has the ultimate authority. So if somebody's saying they heard it from an angel or something like that, they need to know that Jesus has the ultimate authority. Okay. Um, when you think about back in the old law time frame, did the angels play a significant role? What do you think? No? Yes. And how were they how were they looked at? Exactly. They were they were revered highly. They were looked at very highly. Um, and again, I think it's important as we get ready to shut down here, it's important for us for us to understand that uh, what he's doing with regard to Christ and how he's showing while these are important servants and messengers, the angels, that he wants them to understand, but there's somebody far more incredible, somebody far more superior that has benefits and is, is somebody that stands in a position that's unlike anything, including the angels. I'm going to shut down right here. Uh, we'll finish this and get into chapter two, uh, Lord willing, next Lord's Day. I appreciate your comments and appreciate your attendance this morning. Thank you. <laughs>